Hello and good morning. My name is Nicole Heller and this is Reboot 2030, a Democracy School uh, podcast and YouTube channel. My guest today is Chris Hammer. Chris is an honorary associate professor in the School of Physics at the University of New South Wales in Australia and was formerly the National Secretary of Scientists Against Nuclear Arms again in Australia. For some time now, Chris has been president of the Coalition for a World Security Community of Democratic Nations. Now, what exactly that is and why this is important, um, Chris will tell us in a minute. And as I can see that he has arrived, I will invite him straight in. Welcome to Reboot 2030, uh, our uh, YouTube channel and podcast. Um, Chris, I've very briefly introduced you. You've been a a lifelong federalist, really, and uh, and for some time now, you've been advocating for the creation of a world security community. Right. Now, this is a, a mouthful, a world security community, and of course, um, you 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 add two additional words to this of democratic nations. So, the, you know, the, the 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 democracy aspect of this world security community is very important. But as important as the word security, and I think with the, the war raging on in Ukraine um, and the, the situation in the South China Sea kind of not being very stable either, this is really in people's mind uh, the world over. Uh, why has this idea been uh, so important to you uh, and what exactly would its purpose be? Okay, thanks, Nico. Well, as you say, I'm a world federalist. I, as long as I can remember, I've felt that, um, you know, we face some huge global problems. Peace and security, number one. Uh, look at the Ukraine conflict. Climate change, we're going to have to make huge efforts to deal with that problem. Um, the plastic Sargasso Sea in the oceans, uh, 80 million global refugees, something like the population of France, et cetera, et cetera. So we have all these huge global problems as a global society. And dealing with problems like that, the common problems of a society is the function of government. And so the answer is we need a world government to deal with these problems properly. And that's, I believe that as long as I can remember. Um, uh, right. Now, what forms should this world government take? Well, the obvious form is some form of democratic world federation. And that leads you to... Um, so let me, let me start. Let me, let me, let's go back to the purpose of this idea of a world security community once more. So um, at the moment, we have a range of security arrangements. We have places like NATO and we've got other security apparatus, uh, including, of course, the UN itself and the, uh, the United Nations Security Council. So when, when we are proposing a world security community, clearly it would be in direct competition with these existing bodies. So if you define the purpose of a world security community of democratic nations, in relation to these other existing structures, uh, what would it be? In, in, in what way would a world security community differ, say from NATO, for example? Uh, and, and why is that important at this point in time? Okay, let me get there. I, I hadn't quite finished. So um, if, if world government is such a good idea and people have been trying to create it ever since World War II, why haven't we already got it? What, what's the problem? Well, there are multiple problems, but number one is um, 
not all the world is democratic. It has to be a democratic government to avoid any possibility of world tyranny or world autocracy, which would be an absolute disaster. Um, but not all the world's countries are democratic. So what do we do? How do we avoid that problem? Um, sorry. Well, um, I mean, world fairs generally have tried to um, work to reform the UN. The UN is the government system we have at the moment, um, but it's not good enough, um, as instant by the fact that it can do nothing about the Ukraine crisis, for instance. Um, but reforming the UN is almost impossible. Um, there are many problems, but number one is there are two major autocracies, Russia and China, on the UN Security Council, and either of them would veto any meaningful reform. So what we can, what we can do is um, start small, um, go back a bit, start with a small group of countries which do respect the principle of democracy, and form a community, start stage one, follow the European example. Let's make, let me go back once more a step. I'm still at this very principal point of what its purpose would be. Um, you know, so, so I mean, if, if, if I kind of sort of say, well, we've got NATO. So if there's a war that involves Europe or one of its partners, then NATO in a way is there to guarantee the security of its members. Um, yeah. if, if there's a conflict in other parts of the world, yes, the, the UN is imperfect, but the Security Council has at times been able to either mitigate or in some ways prevent or diffuse uh, conflicts. Not perfectly, not always, but it has been able to do um, a certain amount throughout its existence. Now, I totally agree the UN is probably in dire need of repair and probably beyond repair. I, I agree with that analysis, but I still would like to dig down to the purpose. The, what, is, what would okay. be the singular purpose be of a world security community? It's objective. Okay. Well, um, I mean, one idea is to expand NATO so that it's the same as NATO. I mean, the basic idea is a global alliance of democracies, um, which, which could be uh, achieved by expanding NATO, but that's been already, I think, raised by Jens Stoltenberg and knocked on the head by members. So, um, but, well, I'll come to the, the details, but the idea is a global alliance of democracies, which would um, act like an alliance. They would all cooperate to um, guarantee the security of all their members, number one. Number two, they would um, assist the UN um, in peacekeeping operations in non-members, and they would be a much more powerful means of doing that. And um, hopefully then the idea is they would also cooperate on dealing with other problems like climate change. And um, I think President Biden has already suggested that the democracy should cooperate on climate change issues. Let me, let me just those, stop, let me stop that once more because the term security to me is a very broad term. So for example, security for me in my thinking, of course, the core of it would be a, sort of a, a military kind of thing. So to prevent wars in the traditional sense. 
But in the age of pandemics, for example, there is sort of like health insecurities as well. Uh, and we have seen with COVID um, that there are massive like security implications also, of course, for the well-being of our democracies. So what I was wondering, when you talk about the purpose of a world security community, um, how do you define security? What exactly, you know, how wide would you kind of see that brief? Um, and would it also encompass securing, if you like, the health of our democracies? Because you are always adding, and the NATO doesn't do that. I mean, NATO is not about democracy. It is literally just about the old-fashioned prevention of, of war, of being attacked, of being invaded by, you know, sort of an enemy. Um, but in a way, I think your notion of a world security community goes much further and is much broader. And I find that intriguing because it's more holistic. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about your conception of security in the 21st century, um, you know, whether this is purely about preventing wars or that goes beyond that and what that has to do with democracy okay well certainly i would say it can go as far beyond as the members want um can i come back to the example the the um the prototype so this strategy is basically copying the strategy adopted in europe by jean monet and his um, collaborators in about 1950. Uh, they were aiming for a European federation a, a, in the, un, uniting the whole region of Europe, basically to prevent war for the same purpose. Um, but they realized they couldn't get there in one step. They started with a small group of um, progressive members, if you like, the original six members. And they started with a limited, lim, limited objective, the European coal and steel community which was supposed to unite the coal and steel industries of Europe, uh, which were the sinews of war, if you like. And um, their objective from the beginning was the European Federation, but according to the Schumann Declaration, the founding doc document, they realized that Europe will not be built all at once or according to a single plan. And um, so they started with the ECSC in 1950, and then step, step by step, treaty by treaty, they expanded the role of the Union, and well, uh, the Treaty of Rome, the Treaty of U Maastricht, etc. And we've arrived at the present European Union, which is um, not a strict federation. We haven't reached the final objective yet, but it's a long way towards it. Well, so I'm proposing, if you like, we're proposing that we copy those tactics on the global scale, start with a community, and in this case, we're talking about a security community, um, and a limited number of members, and look for the thing to expand and grow, to evolve over decades, probably, until it eventually becomes the um, longed-for World Federation, Democratic World Federation. So, um, I mean, I'd like to see it have as many powers as you like. So yes, uh, health, health, security, um, working on climate change, etc. So it will be up to the members what they want to do. The, the, and once it's started, uh, they should find a very convenient platform or um, mechanism for doing things together. And hopefully that would allow the system to expand over time.
There's a very interesting thought, which you haven't actually spelled out, but I really sense it very strongly, uh, uh, Chris. And this is, is that NATO was built on a very different principle from the principles that you're talking about. NATO, in my understanding, was essentially, I mean, certainly during the Cold War years, built on this notion of mutual destruction, mutually assured destruction, Cold War. So it was essentially built on the knowledge that if you attack us, we have still the capacity to hit back and we're both going to be gone. This, this notion of, and it was, so there was a, a mass, it was essentially a kind of the ultimate, the ultimate threat. We are all going to be destroyed. It was built on fear. Now, this is NATO, and this, there's a whole model built around this, and it's basically, you know, uh, an attack on one, an attack against all, and the, the whole logic that builds around this is basically built around threat uh, and the power of threats in, in preventing wars. Now, Europe took a very different route in the 1950s by saying this must never happen again. And what it did, it said, it's not about mutually assured destruction, it's about the recognition of interdependence. And if we can create a system that is so utterly interdependent that you can't actually fight each other because you'd be fighting yourself, then you're achieving a much more sustainable peace in the long term. And this idea of interdependence on the one hand and mutual destruction on the other are two very different paths we can go. One is divisive and essentially polarizing and creates a kind of us and them mentality. And the other is holistic and creates, if you like, a world community. You know, and I find that it's a very, and so I totally, in a way, get it. But I think for our listeners, it's important to kind of to become aware that there are these two very different paths that we can take. And I think as a world federalist, you've been thinking very hard about these different paths throughout your life. Um, so, so I can see when I said, say, well, what's the purpose? It's like, what's the purpose of Europe? Well, everything. You know, and, and so in a way, it's very difficult to nail it down to a single purpose because the whole idea is that we become so, and it's been so interdependent that we can't really have a war anymore. And this is what happened in Europe to a very large extent. And of course, what we see in Ukraine is also, if you like, the limits of that model, because this is exactly the outer border of the European Union, if you like. And you see exactly there the, the kind of the, the, the notion of mutual, mutually assured destruction on the one hand, which is East-West, NATO versus Warsaw Pact and all that, coming head to head with this idea of interdependence. And, and I think this is a very, very interesting thing. So, um, so yes, so you've been, as a world federalist, been campaigning for this idea for world security community for a long time, and you sort of see a path to it. And as, as a wise campaigner, you realize that this cannot all be done in one big swoop. So that there has, and this is what's the case, it started with a very humble coal and steel community in Europe. And you're suggesting we have to start as humbly, or possibly even more humbly, at the global, at the global scale. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think you're being a bit hard on NATO. The idea was to defend the West against a possible attack from Russia. Um, so the West was very afraid of the Russian army, the Red Army sweeping into Europe, and vice versa. Russia was very afraid of um, the West invading them, and it turned out nobody had any serious intention of doing either. Um, the mutual short destruction was not a well it came into it at one stage but but was not um i think the major motivation for anyway you're quite right so um what we'd like to see 
is a start to this community very like the ECSC. So um, a smaller group agrees to start the integration process and maybe set prepares a declaration like the Schumann Declaration of, of what their eventual aim is. Um, so it's all there to begin with. Um, the world will not be built all at once or according to a single plan as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so ideally we'd like to see that. Um, and I mean, ideally it would, should be a different purpose. The community should be maybe an economic or a community, but there doesn't seem to be such room for that at the moment. The demand at the moment is for greater security. And, you know, democracy has been going backwards relative to autocracy in the world, according to Freedom House and so on, for 15 years or something. So we need to shore up democracy and defend it. Um, there's an obvious need, and Ukraine has made that much, much more urgent. So um, we might actually see something happen before too long. We, we, we come to Ukraine in, in, the, in the latter part of our, of our, of our discussion. Um, now, let's go back once more. So how did this idea, I mean, of course, the World Federalist Movement has been kind of, if you like, letting off a lot of test balloons over the years and been trying yeah. all kinds of ways of getting a, a momentum going that would lead to a more federalist, uh, sort of multilateralist, institutionalized, uh, world order based on the rule of law and all the rest. So there have been many test balloons. Uh, you at some point called this one and decide you're going to run with that. Could you very briefly um, explain yeah, how it started, where you are with this development of a world security community right now? And within this very unsettling context of where we are today, what do you see as the kind of possible opportunities or possible next steps within the next 12 months for this? Just to get a sort of a sense of where we are in this development. Okay. Yes. So, um, as you say, I've been a world federalist for a long time. And um, perhaps the main concrete achievement at the moment is the International Criminal Court, which was um, set up largely at the uh, or motivated by the um, World Federalist Movement and Bill Pace. Um, there are various working groups within the um, movement at the moment. And one of the main ones is um, Andreas Bommel and his move to um, uh, set up a United Nations Parliamentary Assembly, which would be some sort of starting point for a democratic voice within the UN. Uh, so th that's all good. Well, we're recognized as one of their working groups as well. So we're um, working on this other route of uniting the democracies first. As I've explained, the reason is, well, it's much easier to make a start. Um, uh, what was your next question? Well, oh, yes. How did you what? start? How did this come into being? And, and, and what, what are the kind of the milestones you have already achieved? So to get a sense of you know, you, you say it's a working group, um, but it's it's a working group from the day you set it up. So what have been the main the, the, the main achievement and setbacks, if you like, of this kind of coalition uh, uh, of a world security community? Just to get a sense of how, how of the life of your organization, if you like. Okay, we actually started in Stockholm um, in 2018. There was a meeting of the, my brain's gone, the global, Anyway, um, uh, 
a meeting in Stockholm and all of these sort of things were discussed. Global problems um, is what was discussed. Um, and a group of us found we were of like minds. So we talked, we set up a little working group. We were given some assistance to go to the Paris Peace Forum that year and um, present our ideas. And we've gone from there. Um, but we are just a, a small transnational working group. Well, we've got about 50 members now. Um, we've participated in some of the work of the um, Alliance of Democracies Foundation in Copenhagen. So we've um, put on two webinars with them in 2021, I think. Um, we've done what we can. So we're doing what we can. Um, what we have in prospect, I suppose, is, um, as I say, the Ukraine crisis has lent great urgency to the idea of uniting the democracies, especially in the Indo-Pacific. So there's been ideas of um, uh, forming a group or an, uh, an explicit institution involving both, um, say, the G7 and some members in the um, Indo-Pacific, mainly, um, well, Japan's already in the G7, but uh, Australia, South Korea, maybe India. And the idea is there, right, we need to resist the autocratic aggression in Ukraine, which is a you know, huge activity, but we also need to beware of Chinese aggression against Taiwan. And that would be even worse. I mean, China is much stronger than Russia has um, much more sophisticated weapons. Uh, we really might be in World War III if China takes on Taiwan. So the idea is if we can form a strong alliance slash community of democracies around the world, um, it would be so powerful and so formidable that um, no autocracy would dare to commit further aggression. Um, they would embrace, well, I mean, the G7 or the, the proposed D10 would embrace over half the world's GDP and about two thirds of the world's military expenditure. And hopefully nobody would be able to dare to take them on. So we would avoid World War III. That's a major um, plus. And then we could work on these other problems. Um, well, Boris Johnson actually proposed a D10 back in 2021, I think. Um, but I, I don't think it even got discussed at the meeting because it was knocked on head by France and Germany, who thought that uh, such a group would be seen as anti-China. And Japan objected to any idea of including South Korea for some reason that I don't understand. Well, that was two years ago now. So, um, and since then, Russia has actually sent the tanks and so on into Ukraine. So we're actually in a war and things are much more dangerous. And I think everybody might be willing to reconsider the idea. And the next meeting of the G7, the next G7 summit is at the end of May in Hiroshima hosted by Japan. 
And I'm hoping that they might discuss the idea again, a D10, Democratic 10 plus. So the idea is you'd start with them as a core group and then open it to any democracy you wanted to join in um, and hopefully you know, evolve, as they say, following the European pattern. Um, so at the moment, we're trying to, um, as hard as we can, to lobby, which is not very hard, but we're trying to um, lobby for inclusion of that topic in the next um, Japanese G7 summit. And, you know, we ideally, they would agree to form a D10. They would set up a commission to draft a treaty on that basis and um, produce a new declaration, which might be the Hiroshima Declaration, uh, which could be the founding document for a new um, world federation in the long run. It has a good ring. It has a good ring to it, the Hiroshima Declaration. I like that. It, it's it, yes, yeah, it's memorable. Sound terrific here. Um, so that's one thing. Um, yeah, we've also invited uh, Jonas Perello Plesner, who's the executive director of the Alliance of Democracies Foundation, to um, come out to Australia and um, he would open many doors for us and we would talk to politicians and old symposia and so on. Um, so that's what we're doing at the moment, best we can do. There's two questions I have um, to, to get a, a sort of, because I'm, I'm conscious that there might be people out there thinking, would this be something for me? Should I get involved in this? And at the moment I would be thinking this, being a sort of a pragmatist I am, is well, how realistic is that? I mean, what kind of difference, difference can I, as a small, insignificant, like the size of a dust, you know, uh, what kind of difference can I make on the world stage? Because that's what we're talking here, aren't we? We were talking about somehow, somehow influencing world events. Now, I, I, know it's, I know you're not a kind of iglomaniac. I, I know you're a very humble person yourself. So, um, so I find that really fascinating. And maybe, maybe you can sort of share some of your wisdom, how you kind of mentally bridge that gap between being just an ordinary citizen living in a small neighborhood in Australia, if you can square that with kind of like talking about convincing world leaders to come together around certain global uh, challenges. How do, you, how do you square that? I mean, how do, you, how do you kind of stop yourself from thinking, I'm a fantasist. This is just basically fantasy. How do you, how do you, how do you keep that real in your own head? Well, you may be right. I may be a fantasist. Um, but we all have to do what we believe in. Um, so, I, I mean, I, years ago, I took six months study leave for my work in physics and um, wrote a little book on the principles of World Federation, of which democracy is number one. If you, um, and I've been interested in, in the World Federation movement and working on it ever since. One person, one private citizen can't do much. And, you know, it's very frustrating at times how little effect we have. But you have to do the best you can. And... If you believe in it, if you're interested in this sort of thing, then you should um, find a local group to start with. For instance, uh, a branch of the World Federalist Movement or what have you, and join up and do what you can to assist them. And then you should um, contact your local politicians and try and convince them that 
these sort of things are what we need to work on. Um, and eventually we must break through. It, it must happen eventually, in, in, unless we all turn to dust, you know. But I mean, going back to the world security community, I mean, you have a website, you have uh, sort of quite a large uh, group of, 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 of listed members in various different capacities. Um, if, 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 I, if I go to your website and I see and I say, yeah, that's actually really interesting. And it's not just opposing things. It's not just kind of being being sort of against things. No, this is actually kind of really trying to go alongside politicians and alongside other civil society organizations to, to, to help and change, change things. Um, would you welcome new members? And also, if I come to you as, as somebody who has got no idea about world politics, of course, we all have our ideas, but how real they are is another issue. And I come to you and I have got two concerns. A, you don't want to embarrass myself, you know, because I don't want to come across as this kind of like sort of, you know, total sort of uh, a greenhorn, like no, knowing nothing. Uh, on the other hand, um, I want to learn. Do you have some kind of, because you do have some really interesting people in, in your membership who could, you know, be mentors and could other help other people to find their place in the movement. Do you have any kind of way of socializing people into the world security community campaign? You know, are you friendly? You know, will you welcome new members? Yeah, right. We would absolutely welcome new members. Um, Education-wise, um, we ourselves, well, we have some young members who have. Um, uh, their own sort of futuristic website, Altspace VR, I think it's called. Um, and there's been a recent set of um, 20 lectures or something set up by um, an Israeli guy whose name has escaped me for the moment. Um, anyway, uh, we could point people, if you like, to um, places they could learn things about, about all this. Because I think um, that would be really, really helpful. I think a lot of people don't really feel that they have what it takes to do what you do. And knowing you a little bit, I know that you're not that you're very special. I don't get me wrong, but you're not a kind of you're, you're not a Mandela and nor, nor do you pretend to be no. a Mandela. You know, you're just an ordinary bloke, a scientist who's concerned about the state of the world and has put his brains to good use. That's all. And there's millions of people like you in this world who could all, in a way, make a viable contribution. And that's all I'm saying. So, so um, if anybody out there is interested, the World Security Community has a website and you will find their link under this video um, and you can contact them. And Chris and his colleagues will be more than happy to onboard you and to kind of give you a sense of how you might become a more active and, and a, a more effective member in the world community. Um, is, is that a fair thing to say, yeah? That's very kind. Thank you, Nico. That's great. Yep. So, and okay, I so let's, let, let's move on to, um, to, to, to the, next, the next point. I mean, and, and, and you've made it clear in our kind of preliminary chat that this is not really a, if you like, a world security community um, proposition. It's really very much you thinking uh, as somebody who's been thinking about these issues for a long time. But you've been following uh, the uh, uh, the war in Ukraine, the build up to it and the fallout from it and all the maneuvering around it uh, with great interest and also with some trepidation and, and some unease. Um, and you've been thinking about how this could be brought to an end. Uh, and haven't we all? I mean, you know, um, and in Europe, this is a very divisive issue. I mean, and I believe so in the US as well. I'm not sure, I don't know Australia, but 
in, in certainly in Europe and in the US, you either are for Ukraine or you are against it. It's very, very clear. If you are for Ukraine, you want to basically beat Russia back, uh, you know, and you want to do this with maximum force and you want to have the best tanks. And yes, you would like to have this F-16 fighters now as well. You would really want to show sort of united might to beat Russia back. If you're on the side of Russia, on the other hand, or if you are against war, then you're sort of seen as a Russia explainer, as a sort of um, a communist, essentially. Uh, and you're sort of seen as or a Trotskyist or a kind of, you're seen really like or a Stalinist or, you know, whatever label they're going to put on you. But you're certainly not welcome in, in polite society because the official position of the West is very clearly, let's beat Russia back. Um, and so, and you're coming in into this debate with something much more conciliary, with a, actually a much more elegant solution. Um, tell us what you would do. And also, okay. uh, and, and maybe you, you may also kind of just position yourself on this debate, because from the way I know you, you're not a kind of somebody who would make excuses for a kind of a oligarchic or a kind of authoritarian Russia. You, it's, for you, this is not about you know, sort of helping Russia. It's also not just about helping Ukraine. It really is about finding a solution. But maybe you position yourself first a little bit in that conflict before you go into it so that those people who feel that you have to take sides can continue listening to you without kind of thinking, oh, no, 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 He's, you must be on the side of the Russians. Um, so maybe maybe start, start, start with that and then build your argument from there. Yes, well, I'm basically on the Western side. My viewpoint is Western. Um, Putin actually invaded Russia. He announced he wanted to emulate Peter the Great and um, re-establish the Great Russian Empire and so on. And um, no, basically he's an autocrat, so we want to ideally get rid of him. But never, nevertheless, you've got to face the situation at the moment. And at the moment, we've got a stalemate in, in Ukraine, right? Um, Russia marched in thinking they would easily overthrow the Ukraine government. They were given a very sharp repulse and um, had to evacuate from uh, Kiev and so on. Then they lowered their sights to annexing just the um, eastern regions of Donbass, Luhansk and Kherson. Then they were pushed out even of the city of Kherson. And um, now we've reached, as I say, almost a stalemate. It's trench warfare and both sides are hammering away with each other. Russia has changed tactics to trying to destroy the infrastructure in Ukraine, the uh, electricity and the water supply, and trying to um, force them to sue for peace due to cold and hunger. Well, um, on the other hand, Vladimir, what's, Volodymyr Zelensky has announced that um, Ukraine now will not stop until it regains all of its disputed territories, including Crimea. And neither side is willing to negotiate except on its own terms. Well, meanwhile, there are estimates of the casualties and deaths on both sides, and they're in the hundreds of thousands of people who've died. And there's a rough estimate that to repair the buildings and the economy of Ukraine would cost of order $1 trillion. So we're seeing huge amounts of death and destruction. And there's no end in sight. Um, the thing could go on for years yet. Um, 
and Ukraine would just be left as a desert. Uh, anyway, um, all right. So the question is: Is there some diplomatic solution? What my this is just my idea. So th this is off the top of my head, really, to begin with. But um, why not start with a ceasefire? This is what I would like to see happen. Um, followed by a legitimate UN-sponsored referendum in each of the disputed territories, Donbass, Luhansk, um, maybe even Kherson, uh, Crimea, and see whether the citizens of those territories want to be citizens of um, Russia or Ukraine. So both sides would have to agree to withdraw their forces and for the referendum to be supervised by UN peacekeepers, maybe from, say, Brazil and India. And the voter rolls would have to include all the registered voters in each territory uh, recorded before the Russians walked in. So, um, well, whatever. Um, so these referendums clearly demonstrate the will of the people themselves which ought in principle to be acceptable to both sides. Russia says um, the people in, in the disputed territories want to be citizens of Russia and uh, Ukraine says they want to be citizens of Ukraine. And um, okay, so that would be in, in accord with the principle of democracy. Chris, I lost you there. Um... I lost your connection. Chris, you're not uh, there. Oh, now you're gone. Well, Chris is gone, but I hope he will come back. So um, anybody listening live, please stay with us. I believe he's probably going to log back in. It might take a minute or two and then we continue. Okay, uh, I can only assume that we permanently lost uh, Chris Hammer here. I don't know what happened at his end. Um, I was talking to Chris Hammer in Australia. He is the uh, the president of a coalition for a world security community. Um, we've been talking about uh, his initiative and um, the challenges it faces. Um, its need in today's world uh, and why this would make a great uh, a great difference uh, to the stability and security um of 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 this planet um we then went on to talk a little bit about ukraine he has these interesting ideas um about about a referendum and what he's essentially saying is is let the people uh, of those disputed provinces uh, decide for themselves um and um and and stick by stick by that decision and make sure it's an open and a fair uh, referendum and incorporates includes all those uh, who have lived up until or before the conflict started. So all the people that were pushed out, displaced, um, they would have a vote too. Um, and the hope would be that this would make it a, a representative and a fair uh, uh, vote. Um, I have certain uh, reservations about it, uh, not least because um, a significant minority will still lose um, and uh, given the uh, entrenched 
conflict uh, that exists and has built up over many, many, many years uh, between the kind of the, 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 the Russia leaning and the, the, the Ukraine leaning uh, communities in those provinces. I don't think that a referendum would settle it. I mean, we have seen it in, in the UK with the Brexit referendum, it didn't settle it. And indeed we've had referenda uh, you know, throughout history where they, yes, they kind of helped draw or redraw maps but what really, in the end, sort of solved the conflict wasn't the vote, but it was actually kind of in the marriage. It was living together. Uh, it was a very, very different sort of social process rather than a sort of a structured democratic legal process. But I do think that it could be a step in the right direction. I am not uh, rejecting it out of hand. And I think it's important that we do discuss um, these ideas that we kind of otherwise we're in this tunnel. Um, and we can really only think about uh, very, very limited uh, solutions. And in the case with Russia and Ukraine, at the moment, both sides seem to think that sheer force will determine the outcome of the conflict. I think it will only determine the outcome of the war, but it will not bring peace. But now having said all of this, believe it or not, Chris is actually back. So I'm going to invite him back in uh, and see whether we can, what he can add to this. I'm very happy to have him back. back. So um, let me wait for him to rejoin. Chris, welcome back uh, on the show. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, my system ran out of juice. I had it plugged in, but not turned on. Would you believe? I beg your pardon, humbly apologize. Oh, oh, no, no. It's me like not turning up the volume at the beginning. I think it's one of these days, Chris, it's okay. Um, I did let the, uh, the, the live stream run on, run on. So what I will do is, is I'm going to try to cut out this, this section of silence. It was about five or whatever minutes uh, so that we have a sort of a, a seamless kind of a, a dialogue and, um, and, I, and th there'll be a little cat, you know, and hopefully people won't think that I've been censoring you. Um, but, um, but just to kind of to, to make that also, I actually had given up on you and basically launched into my sort of like final thoughts on the subject of Ukraine uh, when then you when you did did come back. So in a nutshell, let me just very briefly say what I did say, just to, to, to get the, um, the continuity. Um, I did say that, um, uh, that I, I think it is very important to think in situations like this one with Ukraine, where at the moment, everybody really just thinks about force as the only solution to this conflict. Uh, and I was essentially saying that, uh, that sheer force, brute force, military force, uh, will determine the outcome of the war, no doubt. Uh, it, this is what force does. It creates a winner and a loser in a war situation, but it'll not determine the outcome of the peace. Uh, and it will not pacify the regions either. Um, you know, the, 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 one of the worst, one of the most one of the most brutal forms of war, of course, is civil war. Um, and and what, what you do have in these disputed provinces is you do have sizable populations that do side with Russia, and you do have sizable populations that side with Ukraine. And then, of course, you have the interference of Russia. It makes for a really, really difficult cocktail. Um, and so... Uh, the peace will be won over a very long period. Now, what you're sort of saying is the referendum 
its purpose wouldn't be to bring peace to the region, but to end the war. Am I right in saying this? Which we've seen with other referenda, and I'm just naming one, like Brexit, which didn't didn't make anything easier, or take the Scottish referendum, or take you know like the, you know like uh, the first referendum in Canada, you know for Quebec independence and independence uh, in Canada, and and you see that referenda because you always end up with a sizable minority that loses. And they very rarely just lay down and, and 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 give up. They tend to kind of. It has to be a decisive, a deci a very decisive outcome for a referendum to stick, really. And even then, it can only be the beginning of a of a peace process, of a process of reconciliation. So, but I think you are aware of these things. So I'm not suggesting that that you that you think that the referendum would solve anything, would solve everything. It would it will literally just be a first step towards peace. Um, but um, 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 so 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 you're basically sort of saying that you would the first step you propose is a ceasefire, um, followed by a UN um, sort of organized and and if you like overseen uh, policed uh, referendum, and basically anybody who would have been on the electoral roll would have been a registered voter prior to the invasion. Of Russia, and this, in the case of uh, uh, Crimea, would mean prior to 2014, I imagine, because obviously, you know, Crimea was, you know, in, invaded much earlier. Um, so, if if you uh, and you would take those electoral rolls, uh, and anybody it doesn't matter whether people live now, whether they live now in Australia, in Germany, in the U.S., or indeed still somewhere in U the Ukraine, they would all have a say in it. Is that is that roughly what you're saying? Yes, it is. That's right. Um, and well, OK, who knows what the uh, result would be. But going back a bit, I mean, the there have been calls for negotiations from uh, high figures. So uh, Henry Kissinger, for instance, you know, the, the great diplomat of the 80s, has called for negotiations to end the war and avoid the possibility of a nuclear conflict which conceivably could result if, if things go badly. And um, General Mark Milley, who's the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the US, has said um, he doesn't see that either side can win militarily um, without huge problems. So he, he also has called for negotiations. He's the chief military man in the US. Um, neither of them, well, has given a very convincing to me basis for negotiations. So I'm saying, right, let's negotiate. And um, the basis could be this idea of a referendum. And the objective is to end this destruction, end these hundreds of thousands of people dying and these terrible destruction, whole cities being leveled in Ukraine. Um, and we would still, if this is accepted, be upholding the principle of democracy. The people in these regions would determine their own fate. And yes, hopefully it would be definitely one side or the other. It's not clear. So there are large minorities of um, Russian ethnic people in Ukraine and they're concentrated in the East. So Crimea, for instance, might easily vote to join Russia. And if so, why not let them do it? I mean, um, it would be against the will of the people to combat that, um, etc. So that's the basis of my idea. Um, 
there are enormous difficulties in the way and getting agreement from both sides would be awfully difficult for a start. Um, you'd need some mediator like um, President Erdogan in Turkey might be able to get both sides to come and, you know, chat informally, maybe agree to something. Um, but I think both sides would like to see an end to this conflict. Um, you know, Russia has been trying to avoid being seen to um, be defeated, basically. And uh, Ukraine has been ground, being slowly ground to the dust and has lost millions of its inhabitants. So uh, I think both sides should be willing to um, negotiate, shall we say. Um, as I say, to avoid cheating, you'd need very strong contingents of peacekeepers from Brazil or whoever. Um, and putting together the roles would be difficult. I mean, everything would be terribly difficult, um, but it might be a possibility. It might avoid all this terrible death and destruction. There, there's, 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 I mean, I, I like the simplicity of your idea, and I don't want to muddy the waters by making it now very complex. Um, but, but I do think um, maybe there's sort of a middle ground to be considered. Uh, one, 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 one thing that is sort of in my mind is, is that you, um, and I don't know whether I would share that analysis that that we can go back to the world it was before the invasion of Crimea. In, in a way, that changed a lot. It, it changed also a lot the way many Ukrainians see Russia. And of course, over the many years since, uh, that change has accelerated. I mean, Russia used to be seen as a friendly country in Ukraine by many. It was not seen as an enemy state. Um, yes, there was cultural conflicts and there was, you know, agonism and there was, you know, all of that and there was a sort of like competition around identity and you name it and of course there was economic forces at war you know at, at, at play in terms of you know where you would buy your coal or you know where you would deliver you know who you'd sell your steel to all of this the, the, i mean ukraine was heavily integrated into the russian economy as well and so on and so on so so there was a, and all of this has massively changed so the world we are looking at now isn't really the world we had prior to the invasion of of Ukraine, so and I sort of sense a little bit that you're kind of not really taking that fully into account beyond the actual sort of like voting, uh, you know, sort of like the the the, the, uh, the electoral roll, you know, the, the actual register of votes, uh, where you're sort of saying, you know, we're basically rewinding to the kind of the where the, where the population lived back then. Um, so I think possibly um, if there was a a referendum in my in my way of thinking there would have to be a kind of a deliberative process would have to precede that um and that deliberative process would have to essentially look at two fundamental questions um one is 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 um what is the geography that we're putting up to the vote is it ukraine versus russia or is it ukraine versus a independent you know, country, uh, and then Russia. So, you know, these provinces may well decide we're actually neither Russian nor Ukrainians. We have our own set of problems and our own economic opportunities, and we want to pursue a different economic 
strategy, industrial strategy, we want to be, be much more integrated economically, say, with Russia, but at the same time, we, we want to have more democratic freedoms than we would have as part of Russia. So there may well be a, an argument to say, well, let's not put two options on the, uh, on, on the referendum, but three. Uh, one would mean you become a federation of independent, you know, republics, um, a, you know, you know, a, a federal republic of whatever, uh, of Russia, Ukraine, Russian Ukraine, or whatever you would call it. Uh, and you would give them the opportunity to develop, if you like, a, a you know, a, a model, uh, a, a, a sort of a, a model of nationhood that could actually in some ways be that buffer zone and could be that bridge between East and West that, you know, that in some ways um, many people would like Ukraine as a whole to be. And if that was the case, then of course Ukraine could much more directly and, 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 and much more proactively kind of attempt to join the West because there would still be that, you know, that, 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 that kind of buffer zone and that kind of, uh, you, know, you know, that mediates between and benefits from that as well, you know, economically and all the rest. So that's just one thought, instead of having two, um, you know, two options on the, on, on the, on, on the referendum sheet to have, to have three. And then, and then of course, the question really is what you're voting for. You know, this, this, this was partially also the problem with the, 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 the Brexit referendum. Um, what, what are you voting for? Are you actually voting to be part of a democracy? Or are you just voting to be part of a geographic, like, a, you know, like say Ukraine, whether it's going to develop democratically or not, or Russia, whether it's going to kind of turn into an absolute dictatorship or not, or whether you can link certain, if you like, conditions to your membership. Yes, we will be part of the Ukraine, but only if certain measures are taken in Ukraine to reduce corruption, to improve the workings of democracy, to improve equality, to do this and the other. On those conditions, yes, we would like to be part of Ukraine, but if you can't have that, then of course not. So the question is, is whether a referendum of this kind could go beyond just kind of setting this on what sides people are on, but also in a way put down markers of what the future of that region should look like. Well, I, I like your third idea, yes. Um, so perhaps a survey rather than a referendum would be the first thing. Um, on the other hand, you don't want to make it too complicated. So that I, was the starting point, yes, I agree. Um, but we're just going through a referendum at will. There's been a referendum proposed on a voice to parliament from the indigenous people in Australia. And there's huge discussions going on um, do we want a simple proposition or do we want details? Um, I, I, I fear it's going to go down to defeat because um, unless everybody agrees, it basically doesn't get through. But anyway, um, yes, the third option, independence, is an interesting one. That, that could be fine with me, um, whatever. But, but as I say, I'd, I'd warn against going into too much detail. Um, to some extent, they would be choosing. I mean, Ukraine is, it seems, a reasonably functioning democracy, whereas Russia is an autocracy, right? Um, Do you know Freedom House to this day never listed it for one day as a democracy? You know that. Really? What is it, a partially free? No, it's an oligarchy. Ukraine or, or Russia? Ukraine. Which one? Ukraine. Ukraine. Freedom House never, you know, th there's a lot of rhetoric in the West 
I mean, of course, they want to be. There is, there's a, there's a, they, you know, there's a big progressive movement within Ukraine who is pushing West and wants to be Western. But there is, I mean, it's, I mean, it, it, the whole country is built around oligarchic structures like Russia, um, and 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 we kind of tend to kind of sweep that under the carpet and tend to forget that. And in a way, I think it is time to give Ukraine that opportunity to be seen as the country they want to be, even though they may not actually have got there yet. So I'm not suggesting that we should now start to knock them down and kind of, you know, but I am suggesting that we have to at the same time be realistic about what it actually is. Um, and, and many of the tensions that you do find in Ukraine have to do with these structures and also with the corruption and the clientelism uh, that kind of goes with that. So if you are a minority in Ukraine, you know, you don't have the minority rights that you enjoy, like say in Australia or in Germany or uh, uh, in a country like uh, the United Kingdom. Um, and so you can see how that has led to strife and how that has led to civic unrest in a sense of you know, uh, needing protection. Uh, and if you're kind of a Russian speaking Ukrainian, then you may look for that protection from Russia rather than from the kind of the, the Ukrainian kind of establishment. There, 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 are real, there are real issues around this and it's not, it isn't really, never has been a functioning democracy. Um, and, um, uh, and for a long time, it has really been sort of a client state of Russia anyway. Uh, so, they're massive problems, and, um, and 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 a simple referendum, I, I think, will not do the trick. But I really do like this idea of thinking about using. You know, we have to make a fundamental decision about Ukraine. Do we just treat it like a North African country, or like any country that we don't really care about, or are we sort of saying, well, Ukraine is actually Europe's opportunity and responsibility? to kind of push out the kind of democratic envelope and to renew our belief in democracy and our principle and to sort of unite a bit like the way the Spanish Civil War, you know, had a sort of a kind of a, a galvanizing kind of effect. Um, in that sort of sense, you know, the Ukrainian war, the Russian war in Ukraine uh, could have that and in some quarters has had that galvanizing effect. Uh, and so, I'm all for using it in that way, but we have to be quite clear that this is a strategy rather than a reality. The reality still is that Ukraine actually is at the very, very best, a very young, a very fragile and a very untested democracy. Right. I mean, I thought Vladimir Zelensky was elected properly, wasn't he? But, but um, you may be right about the oligarchs and all that. I don't know. Yes. Um, well, it's one of the, it's part of the great struggle of democracy versus autocracy, right? And we have to um, push where, where we can for the right side, as it were. Yeah. But that, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. So, um, Chris, um, what I do sort of like about your way of thinking is, is, it's the kind of, if you like, the kind of the the, the reflex you're having, the the kind of the, the the kind of the natural inclination to sort of say, well, um, we have to think about a way of solving conflict, you know, outside and beyond the wars that are inevitable, 
I don't think that you're suggesting that we can just say be all it's all peace and love and and you know you're not I don't I don't see you in that light at all. And I, as, as you said yourself, you're you're solidly if you like on like like part of the Western alliance in in in, in your thinking on that. Um, but there is an impulse that you have, sort of a, a natural inclination that goes much further than much thinking on the Western side. And, and so I think this is a really, so when you suggest that this idea of a referendum, it's very easy to bash it. It's very easy to kind of undermine it. And become, as you said yourself in your, in your, in your short interaction earlier uh, about this idea, big problems, yeah? And if, you know, and, and there's a saying, there's a thousand ways of killing a cat. I mean, in that way, there's a million ways of killing a, the idea of a referendum. I mean, you know, so this will only happen not because it's possible, but because we make it possible. And so, so, so I think, uh, and, and I really do think that your way of coming to this is very, very healthy. Um, and it's very much the same spirit, I think, that drives you thinking behind this idea of a security, uh, a world security community, which again, you said, sort of saying, well, this has to be a democratic, um, a, a democratic enterprise, because the last thing we would want at a global level is a, you know, sort of a global authoritarian government. Right, absolutely. And a third of the population, probably more, instantly reject the idea of world government because they, you know, they've read 1984 or Brave New World. They associate the idea instantly with jackboots and swastikas and things like that. Yeah. So, um, but on the other hand, as I say, yes, th this is just seen as the first step towards a brighter future where we all join together to solve the global problems confronting us, which basically we have to do, or we're doomed to some extent. All right. Well, very good. Thank you very much. And um, see you next year, if not before. <laughs> see you next year, if not before. Chris, okay. thank you very much for coming on to Reboot 2030. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.